This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick. Today, we are going to be talking about confessionalism. So, to start us off, Austin, can you give us a definition for confessionalism? Yes, I will give us a definition. Confessionalism is a term that would define how a church, a seminary, or denomination uses a creedal statement of faith or a confession of faith. And we can differentiate between a creedal uh, statement and a confession of faith. Creedal statements are usually shorter, brief statements about what we believe, sometimes in the form of a bullet point format, sometimes in the form of a question and answer format. Confessions of faith are typically longer, more exhaustive documents that tell us uh, exactly what a group of people believe that subscribe and affirm that confession of faith. So that's what I will uh, give for a definition of confessionalism, one that subscribes to a confession or a creed. Where do we see some teaching or precedence of confessing truth in Scripture? One place that we see confessionalism is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, the Bible says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Uh, so, Notice what Paul says in this verse that's very important. In the English Standard Version, he says, we confess. Now, when I preached through this passage at my church, I failed in my sermon preparation time to mention what the other translations say, because not all of them say, we confess. Some of them say, without controversy. Uh, I can't remember what the another one of the translations say, but... Uh, this is where we get the idea or concept of confessionalism. The Greek word behind we confess, homologumenos, from the word homologeo. I've got a BDAG pulled up here for some brief definitions that may help us uh, in this discussion. The first definition of this word is to commit oneself to do something for someone. So promise or sure, 
The second one, which really we are uh, emphasizing in the teaching of confessionalism, is to share a common view or be of common mind about a matter to agree. And the third one is to concede that something is factual or true to grant, admit, or to confess. And fourthly, uh, to acknowledge, claim, profess, praise, to acknowledge something ordinarily in public. So uh, two, three out of these four definitions certainly directly apply in this context to this word. Uh, this is a word which means to confess the same thing. And as Paul writes to Timothy here in 1 Timothy 3.16, that's what they're doing. Uh, they confess together, firstly, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. So they're establishing doctrine together that they agree upon. They affirm together the doctrine of the incarnation, a good doctrine for the church to hold. They believe that God became a man. Uh, secondly, it says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit vindicated the ministry of Jesus on earth. Uh, Romans 1.4, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. So we see God's Spirit vindicating Christ. The third thing they confess together is that Jesus was seen by angels. So we read throughout the Gospels, uh, we read about Jesus's earthly ministry, and we see the angels are commonly present with him. They are with Jesus during his uh, around the time of his birth. They're with Jesus, and they minister to him. Uh, as he faces temptation from Satan in the wilderness, they're with him uh, in his death and resurrection. So the angels saw Jesus, and Paul and Timothy confessed these truths to the church as they are laying a foundation for the church to affirm these truths too. Fourthly, it says that Christ was proclaimed among the nations. They affirmed that the gospel message is not limited to one people group. The gospel message is to go out to Gentiles and Jews alike. Uh, fifthly, or yeah, fifthly, they confess together that Christ was believed on in the world. Uh, so they believed that Jesus was their Savior while he was among them. And lastly, Paul and Timothy confess together that Christ was taken up into glory. So they affirmed the doctrine of Christ's ascension. They believe that Christ returned to heaven after he resurrected from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father. So as we look at this verse, 1 Timothy 3.16, we see them quickly making either a creedal statement, perhaps a, a summary of beliefs that they have that they agree together with. Um, I will move on from this passage. Uh, I think Paul and Timothy are deriving their teachings from Jesus, and I think Jesus derives his teachings, as Richard Barcellus would say, from the Hebrew canonical writers of the Old Testament. 
So I do want to look at the Hebrew canonical writers of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. As I believe Moses is writing this passage. Deuteronomy 6, 4, a passage that's very familiar to our listeners. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Many of you know this to be the Shema, an important confession made by the Israelites that affirmed that Yahweh is one God. So even today as Trinitarians, we confess the oneness of Yahweh. We are Trinitarians who affirm and confess this doctrine. Uh, I may, this may op, uh, open us up to some conversation, but in the Old Testament, there are other uh, people that are non-believers in Yahweh. Perhaps some of them believed in multiple gods, and um, the Israelites separated themselves from the heathen nations around them by proclaiming that Yahweh alone is the only one and true living God. So their confessional statement not only affirmed what they believed, which was truth, but it rebuked those around them who taught falseness. So Jimmy, do you have any other passages that you want to look at or discuss as we examine scriptural precedents for confessionalism? Well, considering, again, Deuteronomy 6.4, I mean, as Moses goes on from here, he commands Israel to love the Lord their God with their whole person, and then he says that these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. And he goes on from there to say that you shall teach them to your children. They shall be on the frontlets of your eye. They shall always be in front of you. And I believe everything that you said was true, but I might emphasize something slightly differently. It was not so much that Israel had set themselves apart, but that Yahweh had set them apart to be his people. And Yahweh is the one giving these pronouncements somewhat as a an assertion of his supremacy over all the false deities that surrounded Israel and the ancient Near East. They are his people. And, and we see multiple confessions within the Old Testament, confessions of faith. I mean, none are coming straight up to my to my mind, but I mean, just the scriptures as themselves, it, it is a confessional document. Truths are being confessed and proclaimed and pronounced and declared and affirmed. Um, now, they're not so much being structured in a systematic way as we, we commonly do with our confessions. However, there is a system of truth underlying the overall scope and teaching of scripture because God is consistent and thus his revelation and the truth therein will be consistent. But yeah, I, I think both Deuteronomy 6.4 and 1 Timothy 3.16 give a an adequate scriptural precedence for this idea of confessing truth. I mean, you could also think of, I want to say it's Jude 5, I might be wrong, with that, but where we are called to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Well, what is that? Jude 4, correct? Or I think so. I can't, okay, well, we can look that up or our listeners can correct us on that. But 
to contend for the faith once for all delivered for the saints when he said that there there was something in his mind as he was saying the faith contend for it or or even first peter where we are said to defend the or to give a reason for the hope that is in us and and to do that requires an assertion of truth and actually it is jude chapter or jude 3 is where that that Jude passage comes from. But so that's some more precedence for this idea of having a confession of faith, having a uniform idea, a robust idea of what scripture teaches. But from there, I, th- I think we're at a good spot to move on to the next point of our discussion. What are some common objections to the idea of confessions and creeds? Um, if you have never been brought up in a confessional church or you've never been catechized as a child and you've never been around confessions of faith, when you start to hear about these things, uh, perhaps your mind is brought to Roman Catholicism. And that's what a lot of people think about confessions of faith, that they are just for Roman Catholics. Um, but that is not the case, um. Baptists historically have been confessional people uh, during the 17th century in England. Many of our Baptist forefathers were uh, thrilled in 1689 to uh, sign or uh, to be a part of being signatories of the Second London Baptist Confe- Confession of Faith in 1689. Uh, the Act of Toleration was given and giving the freedom to nonconformists, that is, uh, non-state church churches to have more freedom. So this this allowed Baptists to have uh, the freedom of expression. And one of the first things that they did with that privilege was form their confession of faith and sign it. I know that uh, it was written before then, but this is when they had the privilege to do this. So Baptists, uh, for some period of time, have historically been a confessional group of believers, even amongst different Baptists that disagree with each other. General Baptists, in particular Baptists, have confessions of faith. So this is not just Romanistic um, Presbyterians have confessions of faith. We read of Congregationalists that are not as popular today, but they had confessions of faith during this time. So that would be an objection to confessions of faith that, that is that it's not Baptist. That's just simply not true. Um, another objection to utilizing confessions of faith or catechisms is that confessions of faith with human authority undermine the sufficiency of scripture that um, we are using something else besides God's word to interpret God's word. But if you look at nearly any confession of faith or creedal statement, that's a good one. They almost always start with a concise statement of what that confession believes about scripture. I don't think anybody 
that is truly confessional thinks that the confession is divine authority unless it is quoting scripture. So um, when someone says that a confession of faith undermines the sufficiency of scripture, we are not trying to put the confession of faith on an equal level of authority as the word of God. We are simply using the confession of faith to help us as a tool to help us understand what God's word says. Uh, I think brother Jake a while ago when we podcasted with him on this topic said that a confession of faith can be like rail guards and helping you interpret. So you don't get way off in left field or in right field. Um, thirdly, and Jimmy, uh, I've heard, I've been in conversations with you and we've spoke about this, but another objection that we've heard to someone that is anti-confessionalism is no creed, but Christ. And the statement, no creed, but Christ sounds really good at first at the surface level, but it's not only hypocritical, but it's contradictory. As soon as someone says no creed but Christ, they are confessing what they believe about Christ, but there's no written document to say what they believe. So the one is the one who says no creed but Christ is hypocritical when we ask them to tell us something about the Bible, because Biblicism says that you can only use the words that are in the Bible to tell who Christ is. So as soon as they do anything besides read the scriptures, they're contradicting themselves. You have any thoughts? Yeah, and kind of a spinoff of that one. I, I've actually seen and interacted with people who have said no creed but the Bible, which is similar to saying no creed but Christ. And I, I generally flip that on them and ask them where that creed is in the Bible. Where where does it say no creed but the Bible within the Bible? And if they are unable to bring me chapter and verse that actually testifies to that or, or says that, then they have already refuted themselves and affirmed a creed that is not explicitly scriptural language. And and yeah, it, it's somewhat nonsensical to, to say something like that. Um, but a lot of people believe that. And, and I get why, and I get the attraction to it, because it does sound spiritual to say no creed but the Bible. All that we believe is the Bible. And, and where that begins to become problematic is there are many that claim to believe the Bible like we do. Like they believe it to be divine inspiration. And yet, I mean, all the way back to the early church, you had people who claimed the scriptures were there, but yet renounced very, very, very key doctrines that are taught in the Bible, such as the Arians denied the deity of Christ, yet they would all say that they believe the Bible. Or nowadays, the Mormons, they, they're polytheist, and they also believe that God is a creature like us in an exalted state, and yet they will say that they believe the Bible. And it's like, in order to even begin to converse with them, we are going to have to extrapolate extrapolate truths or or explicate truths and, and point them out 
to where they are at in the Bible and then give some reason and systematize them and give order to them in order to give a reasoned defense for what we believe that the Bible actually teaches. And in creeds and confessions, they they help us to where we don't have to start over and reinvent the wheel every time there's a theological controversy. When dealing with the Jehovah's Witness, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, are both very, very, very helpful um, in that Jehovah's Witness are basically Arian 2.0. And, and that's they, they also deny the deity of Christ in the Nicene Creed and the, and the Chalcedonian Creed. And I believe the, the Creed of Constantinople also all engage more than just Arianism, but they do by way of their affirmations or denials, show how Arianism is false or declare that Arianism is false. And then in any good confession of faith, you will have a section on the person of Christ that also would eliminate any vestiges of Arianism and try to be careful in that. So I don't know if that actually deals with any more objections, but but essentially it's like (laughs) the problem with being against confessions is that it one it's self-defeating no one can actually do it in a consistent manner and then two it's like how can you talk to anyone about your faith without some sort of confessional identity even if it's not written down you you do affirm certain truths that the scriptures teach and you may even communicate them in languages or in language that is not per se scriptural, because I know that most of these people are not speaking in Koine Greek or Biblical Hebrew or Aramaic. They are not using the language of Scripture. Even in translating Scripture, they are providing interpretations of Scripture and then articulating those interpretations. So that might be another way of responding to the objection to to the no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible. Um do you have anything in light of what I've said to add to that? No, I really think our next section will help us as we consider objections. Okay. So what? It, it will help us to respond to objections. Okay. Well, I was getting ahead of us then, but let's go and move on to that next section. And Austin, why are confessions necessary? Why do we need them? Well, you are correct, brother. You were getting ahead, and you were hitting on some of these, but that's that's great. Uh, certainly, they need to be emphasized. The first reason why confessions of faith are necessary is because it lets us know what we believe as a church. We mentioned in the definition that a confession of faith can be used at a denominational level, at a seminary, and at a local church. And certainly for the health of the local church, it would benefit all of the members and the, those in leadership to know what that church believes. So going back to our illustration, no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible, uh, when we say things like that, we as individuals know what we believe, but no one else knows what we believe unless we explain it to them. And then the next person may be confused about what we believe. But whenever we do have a confession of faith, we are honest about the doctrines that are being taught from the pulpit of the church that we're serving at and that 
the kind of conversations that we're having to help disciple people in the church and to counsel those people in the church. So there's no secrets. Everything is left out in the open with a confession that is being used and accessed. Um, the second reason, which is very similar to the first, is that a confession of faith or a creedal statement promotes unity within that church. So if um, there is a standard or a confession that is being taught doctrinally at that church, and people confess those truths together, and they believe those truths together, then they're being unified together on the things that they agree with about. Uh, this is going back on your illustration, but I'm uh, trying to keep groups and denominations that are within the realm of orthodoxy and that have not left the realm of orthodoxy. You mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I'm excluding them from this illustration. But say that we throw a bunch of people in a room. We throw a Baptist, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, maybe even a Pentecostal into a room, and they all say, I believe the Bible, and they may even be within the realm of orthodoxy. But there's going to be enough doctrinal differences that are going to separate us at some point that we are not going to agree with together about. But whenever we pull out our confessional document, we tell other believers whom we disagree with what we believe about the Bible. And so I said it promotes unity, but I think it can also create a healthier disagreement amongst other Orthodox groups because it provides a standard for someone else that you disagree with to read and study for themselves. So um, those are t two or three reasons. Another reason why confessionalism is important, and I'll just be very brief with this one because you you hit it right in between the eyes, was that a confession helps you defend against heresy. So um, if someone tried to come into a church and was teaching false doctrines on the Trinity, like Jimmy mentioned, we can rebuke them with the authority of the Word of God and then clearly hand them our confession of faith and teach them what the truth is. And then the last one that I'll offer up is that a confession of faith, confessional document, a creedal statement can be a great, great tool to help Christians mature in their faith as believers. Um, we are living in the technology age. So when many people have questions about the Bible, they go to Google to get their questions. They get the, to get the answers to their questions. And oftentimes, uh, we don't want to ask our church leaders or our church elders. So we try to get an answer off of Wikipedia where anybody and their brother has access to. But confessions of faith help teach our parishioners what we believe, and they help grow our parishioners in topics like the Bible, God, man, salvation, the church, end times, all of the necessities of the Christian faith. Um, and this was mentioned implicitly by you, but more explicitly, I want to say that Having a confession of faith unites us to the church of all ages. Having a confession of faith unites us to the church of all ages. Um, we're greatly benefited by the people that wrote 
the Nicene Creed. And we agree that they are followers of Christ as they affirmed those truths together. So we are united to them in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have been if there was no confession of faith. So that's what I've got for the necessity of having a confession. The only thing I would add, and piggybacking off of the point before your last point, um, being a good tool for Christians maturing in the faith, I, I think I see on forums sometimes questions about what are the best ways or best tools or best resources to disciple believers in sound doctrine. And something I've come to to embrace and I'm thinking through how to do it practically, I might even write some sort of curriculum or something like that that utilizes both the 1689 Confession and the Baptist Catechism that was written shortly after that based off of the 1689 Confession. But those tools, the Catechism and the Confession, were meant to be used as a way to, to disciple or mentor and, and, and educate, as well as cultivate spiritual maturity among not only the pastorate and those who serve in leadership or in teaching positions, but also those who make up the rest of the congregation, the laity, as they are commonly called. So I I would say that's another, at the very least, a practical benefit of having confessions and creeds and catechisms. It's ways, they are tools in your tool belt to use to, to disciple and, and encourage and edify and educate the people who you have been called to shepherd if you are serving as a pastor, if you are even a parent. They are tools that can be used to teach your children the truth because there are also children's catechisms, and and Baptists have several children's catechisms that can be used. So where we're going to head out now is we're going to talk about something that I think is very practical, and it's, it's likely to be a question that eventually will be asked. What does it mean to subscribe to a confession of faith, Austin? What, what does it mean that I subscribe to a confession of faith, or what's required to be subscription? Uh, well, in order to be a member of a church that is practicing healthy subscription, you simply have to submit to the teachings of the confession of that church. So um, even if you don't agree with 100% of it or embrace every part of it, you have to be willing as a member to submit to the teachings of it. Um, I think there should be a distinction made, though, between uh, members and elders, those that are going to be teaching. Uh, They must affirm the confession in a way uh, that they are comfortable with accepting all of it, except if they can show specifically where they show exception. And they must teach from it. They must not have uh, major disagreements about it. So the the member needs to submit to the teaching and the elder needs to teach from the confession. You have any thoughts on subscription? Um, I mean, I think you just hit everything that I would say about it. I mean, I, I think that's an adequate adequate way to think of subscription. It's just affirming it. And if you are 
a member of the church, as you said, just sitting under the teaching of it and submitting to the teaching of it. And if you are a pastor, an elder, having a, at least if you do take exception, being able to point out where and why, and if it's not on one of the the very primary doctrines or even a, a secondary doctrine that might cause strife or division within the church, then then you must be able to show where and why. So with that said, what, let's get to our conclusion. Which confessions of faith do you recommend? <sighs> I don't know if I want to go here or not, because I don't like to joke too much around whenever it gets to these topics, but I am not hashtag truly reformed TM. So to you, I would like to recommend the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, I would also like to recommend the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Um, I know that the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uses the abstract of principles as a confession of faith. Surely those three documents would be a help for Baptists. Uh, for Southern Baptists, which Jimmy and I both are, uh, we... Our churches affirm the Baptist faith and message, 2000. So those are some resources that I would recommend. Um, some other resources that we could recommend to non-Baptists, uh, some resources we could recommend to non-Baptists would be the Westminster Confession of Faith, perhaps if you're Presbyterian, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, Jimmy, I didn't mention any of the uh, confessions or creeds from the early church. Do you want you mentioned some of them when we were uh, discussing earlier? Do you want to give some recommendations on those? Yeah, you have the Apostles' Creed, you have the Nicene Creed, and you have the Creed of Chalcedon. There, I believe the, the also the Council in Ephesus is sometimes recommended. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what that delineates, but I, I believe that is one. But at, the first three that I mentioned are certainly three of the the key key ones from the early church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, when the philoquy clause on the Holy Spirit proceeding both from both the Father and the Son was was added, and then also the Chalcedonian creed is is another major one mainly talking about the person of christ again um as as the nicene creed deals with quite a bit but but going into even more depth about the hypostatic union in the incarnation so that would be one i i would recommend there are also confessional lutherans i believe the book of concord is something that they use but if a lutheran listens and i'm wrong just forgive me for my my lack of knowledge of what exactly what exact confession that you use. Did you mention the Heidelberg Catechism? No. So, and that that's a reformed confession. You have the three forms of unity also, um, which include numerous things. But there's several good confessions of faith, and as a Baptist who is confessional. I, I prefer the 1689 confession to the other ones. And with 
humility, we I believe we can all say that not one of the confessions is perfect in every way, and there is more that can be said beyond what the confessions say about Scripture too. But those core Reformed confessions and and even our confessional Lutheran brethren, or even our confessional General Baptist brethren who who hold to an Orthodox confession of faith of some sort. All those things I, I think are valuable to read, and if you find yourself in one of those faith traditions, I, I think you should pick up the confession of faith and, and become very familiar with it. We also uh, didn't mention the 39 articles for Anglicans, and uh, we didn't mention the Athanasian Creed for Trinitarians, you Bible believers out there. Yes. So that's yes. all I can add. All right. Well, do you have anything else that you would like to say, Austin, on the subject? Well, how about you? Uh, you close us out then. Okay, I, I will. Uh, thank you for listening to this conversation that we've had today on confessions of faith and creeds. We pray that it has been a help to you and that uh, you would consider using these great resources that God has given to his church. Thank you for listening to The Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like The Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to The Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.